This morning we're going to be in John chapter 2. We're going to be looking through some verses that majority of the time is just read over and then we automatically jump to John 3.16 and about being born again. And most of the time these verses are skipped and the implications of these verses. And so the message title this morning is it's not up to you. It's not up to you. And so I encourage you to grab your Bibles, have it open this morning, and I'm excited where we will be going. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you. We open your word. God, may you teach us. May you show us what we need to hear, what we need to know. God, the verses where we're going and what we'll be reading is really a lot of background of salvation and how this happens and the implications and the inner workings of this. And it may be difficult to understand. It may confront our theology. I know it has mine. But God, we thank you for not leaving us alone, that you grow us and that we have your word and we can see who you are and what you're doing. God, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. May you use me as an instrument for your will. Holy Spirit, may you work and do only the work you can do in us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll be in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. We're just going to look at this one verse We see many believed in the name of Jesus. This comes from the Greek word pistis, which means faith, or to believe or to have faith in, trust in. That's the Greek root word there. And it said many of these people were believing in Jesus. They saw him doing these works and they were following him. They believed in his name. But then we read in verse 24, a difficult verse. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. It's going to lead us to point number one this morning. Jesus knows all people. We're going to we're going to look into that. What does it mean that Jesus would not entrust himself to these people? I mean, they were believing in him. They were following after him. But Jesus says, because I know you, I'm not going to entrust myself. It's actually the same Greek word. Jesus is not going to entrust pistis Believe in them, even though they're believing in him. Startling when you look at it. We can read verse 23 and 24 like this. Many had faith in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not have faith in them because he knew all people. What is Jesus teaching us here? It can be said this way. The people trusted in Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust in them. Pastor John MacArthur says, though they believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. Or Jesus had no faith in their faith in him. Interesting. What Jesus is teaching, and it's difficult to understand, is there's a type of belief, there's a kind of faith in Jesus that doesn't mean someone is a believer. These people are following after him. They're saying, they're they're trusting, they're believing in his name. But Jesus is saying, I don't believe in your belief in me. 
there's an underlying principle there. And I know this may be difficult for us to understand, and that's okay. Many things in Scripture are difficult for us to understand. And what that should do is make us just realize we're not God. He is. Okay? And we take these things and we work through these things. We believe in these things. Verse 25 goes on and says this. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. Point number two, Jesus knows what is in all people. So not only does he know all people, but he knows what is in all people. This means nothing you have ever done, nor will ever do, will ever be a surprise to Jesus. Because he knew you and knows you and knows what is inside of you. That should should kind of blow our minds this morning that there is nothing that will ever surprise him. And when he was meeting with people, he knew who would follow him and who would not. Because he knew what was in them. And we're going to see that in some scriptures. For example, Judas was no surprise when Jesus was picking 12 disciples. Here shortly, we're going to see in John chapter 6, where he says, he's speaking to the 12. He said, I picked all of you. And I know what's in each and every one of you. And one of you is a devil. We're going to look into that shortly because Jesus knows all people. He knows all of you. He knows my he knows me. He knows what is in us. What does this look like for us this morning that Jesus knows? That means he knows every deepest, darkest secret that you have. That you will ever have. He knows your intimate thought life that you are ashamed of. Jesus Christ knows that. And I want to tell you that is good news. We might be thinking, how is that good news that he knows everything that I don't want even my closest friend, my husband, my wife, he knows things I'm trying to forget. How is that good news that he knows those things? And it's not like they're way in the back of Jesus' mind. Every thought is in the front of Jesus' mind. And they're right there. How is that good news? Well, it's good news because it's not like he's coming into this marriage with with baggage he doesn't know about. He still chose to love you and pursue you in spite of knowing everything about you. You know, people get married all the time. For those of you who are married, I mean, when you met your husband or wife before they were and you were dating, did you really go to them right before you got engaged, and share every single darkest secret with them? No, probably not, because you actually liked the person and wanted them to like you, right? You're not trying to scare them away, or right before the wedding, hey, I just want to share every single bad thought I've ever had. Nobody really does that, but Jesus does that for us. He knows all of these things, yet he still pursues us as his bride. So this is incredible news, that he knows all of these things, but he pursues us anyways. It should overwhelm our soul this morning that we can have such a relationship with Jesus Christ that he still pursues us. So it is good news that he knows all people, knows what is in all people. Well, as we move into John chapter 3, we're going to see how this actually plays out in relationships. So we see Nicodemus, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. You can follow along. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, 
Listen to what he says. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Did you hear what Nicodemus said? He said, we know. Who's the we? Well, Nicodemus would have been coming on behalf of the Pharisees, representing the Pharisees. And they understood that when God sent a messenger, he authenticated that messenger by signs and works. This person could do things no one else could do, and that was Jesus, or that was God's authentication on this person. So they said, listen, we know you have come from God because only someone from God could do these things. And it says, we know you're from God. Look what Jesus says to him. This is exactly what we've already learned in chapter 2. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, he focuses on Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here they're saying, listen, we know you are of God. And Jesus is saying, you're not born again. You're not even a believer. You believe in me, but you're not a believer. Exactly what we've seen. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into the womb? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, Jesus is not teaching that in order to get the spirit, you must be baptized. Because at this point, Christian baptism wasn't even established yet. Jesus was telling Nicodemus, this theology teacher, that he should have understood from the Old Testament that when he's speaking of references with terms of water and spirit, that it really meant God's outpouring, God's spirit in the end times for purification and new life. He's saying, listen, you're a teacher. You should know the things I'm talking about. But Jesus said in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Which leads to point number three this morning. And it's just going to be a little diagram here. Flesh only can produce flesh. And then there's a barrier there. Spirit can only produce spirit. Flesh, human flesh, sinful flesh cannot produce anything spiritually good. And the Spirit of God only produces spiritual things. And this is what Jesus is teaching. Flesh can't produce spirit, and spirit does not produce flesh. They're separate. And the obvious question that we come to is, well, then how do you get the spirit? It's the same question that Nicodemus came with. Nicodemus came and said, how do I get the spirit then? And so many times we jump to other things, but listen to what Jesus told him, verse 7, when he's asking the question, well, how do you get the Spirit then? Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, in this passage, in verse 7 and 8, we see the wind that represents the Spirit. And the Spirit basically does what it wishes, goes where it wants to go. And Jesus is saying, listen, we don't know where the Spirit comes from. We don't know where it goes. We don't know where it's going. All we can see is the effects of it. 
Nicodemus at this point still thinks it's something he needs to do. He still thinks, what do I need to do to become born again? This passage and many other ones are just emphasizing the priority and the sovereignty of God at work in salvation through the Holy Spirit. Look with me, because this may be a new concept to many of us. Maybe you've never heard it preached this way, but look at the teachings. Remember in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, some who believe aren't believers. And then we go to Nicodemus, and he's saying, listen, how do I get the Spirit? I mean, this is a strange witnessing scene that we see of Jesus talking to an unbeliever, right? He doesn't tell him what he should do. He doesn't say, just pray this prayer. He doesn't say, go and do these things or just believe this certain thing. Jesus doesn't say any of that. Nicodemus comes and says, he he sees the flesh only can produce flesh. And Jesus is saying, only the spirit can produce a spirit. And Nicodemus is thinking, well, then how do I get the spirit? And what does Jesus say? The spirit has to do the work. What do, you, what do you do with that? What does Nicodemus do with that? What do we do with that? That's not anything we do. It's the Spirit. Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus asks, how do I be born again? Can I enter the womb? He says, no. It's the Spirit's working. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The Spirit blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And here's the point Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus. Just as you had nothing to do with your natural birth, you have nothing to do with your spiritual birth. It's the same concept. He's talking about birth. He's doing it for a reason. Jesus is using the illustration of birth for a reason because you didn't decide, any of us decide we wanted to be born, right? It just happened. And it's no coincidence that it's being called born again rebirth. Jesus used that term for a reason because it has nothing to do with what we do or did, just as natural birth doesn't. Only flesh produces flesh. Spirit produces spirit. Look with me in John chapter 6, and we're going to see everything we've seen reiterated in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60. So here, Jesus just told them, I am the bread of life, told them some tough sayings and what they needed to do and why. And then in verse 60, it says this, when many of his disciples, this isn't just a crowd of unbelievers, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, remember, he knows all people. And he knows what's in them. Right there. They were grumbling. He said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Same principle we are, we've already looked at. And then Jesus goes on and says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 64. But there are some of you, plural, speaking to a lot of disciples, more than the twelve, there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So this group is listening and they hear this and they say, only the Spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Some of you do not believe. And then he goes on to say, this is why I told you. Why would Jesus say, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. I mean, if God grants everybody to come to Jesus Christ, then Jesus would never say this. But when he does say only those who have been granted, that means there are some who have not been granted. Verse 66. Listen, to, it's amazing what happens here to me. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It would be like, Jesus standing here this morning and speaking to us. I mean, we're here at church to listen, to hear about Jesus. And he speaks to us and he says, listen, I know you. I know every one of you. I know your deepest, darkest secrets and who you are and what's in you. And there are some of you here who do not believe. And it was at that instant that some of them got up and left. They said, I don't believe. They, they either just realized it or they knew that Jesus knew they really didn't believe. And they just got up and they left. It's incredible when you think about what that means and the implications of that. Now, Jesus asked a question going on in verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, now he's talking to his disciples, Do you want to go as, away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Remember, these are the ones he picked. How did he pick these? Well, he knew all men and he knew what was in them. He knew they would come to him and believe in him and trust in him. So he asked this question. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the twelve? And Jesus here is, is reaffirming what we've already learned. And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. How many years later? And Jesus knew. And he picked him anyway for the sovereign purpose of being taken to the cross for us. Now maybe your theology is being wrecked this morning. You're finding how to fit this in. I know at college... I would have had my theology wrecked if I really would have had the eyes and ears to see some of these things. But I was on the other side debating against some of these things. But I just want to praise God for wrecking my theology all the time. Listen, this is a good thing when we come and encounter with truths in the Scripture that we have to struggle with. Because I understand it is a, it is a tough thing. You have your whole theology lined out and how these fit all together. And then you remove a piece and you fit a piece in there that doesn't fit. And you have to move everything else sometimes around a little bit, trying to stay biblically centered. But praise God, he doesn't leave us. He's always growing us. Some of you may be thinking, well, that's not how it seemed to happen for me. I can share how it happened for me because I'm, I'm right with you. I was listening to the word of God being preached. I understood my brokenness, my sinfulness. I knew 
The conviction of God was upon my soul. I had broken His commandments, and I deserved punishment for my sin. But in that same instance, I understood the gospel. I understood I needed a Savior, and I was calling out to Him to come and save me, transform me. In that same moment, I had this tension of judgment, but also salvation. And I became a follower of Jesus Christ. If you would have asked me 10 minutes after that, what happened? I would have said, I followed Jesus Christ. I ran after Him. I trusted in Him. I believe in Him. And I would have thought, I did it all. But now, after reading Scripture and understanding, Jesus has shown us what really happened. And we get to see an inside picture of Jesus talking to a theologian, Nicodemus. And now I understand that that which is born of the flesh can only produce flesh. Listen, I ran after him. I chose. But I could not have done those things unless the Spirit was doing them first in me. Because the flesh only produces flesh. And if I ran to Jesus, it's only because the Spirit was helping me run. It was making me run. It wasn't this a little bit of Casey and a little bit of the Spirit because a little bit of Casey doesn't want anything to do with the Spirit, right? It wants nothing to do with the Spirit. It was the Spirit of God moving. So we look at the Word of God now, and now I understand that the Spirit of God was behind my spiritual birth. There's no other way to look at John chapter 2 and John chapter 3 and John chapter 6 and Romans and so many other places in the New Testament I mean, when you begin to see these things and you put these goggles on, when you read Scripture, you'll see it all over the place. And I don't know how I didn't used to years ago, but now everywhere I see it. And it's a praise God because He did that and He's pursuing us. Some of you may be thinking, because this is where the conclusion goes many times, people say, well, if you believe that, you won't do evangelism. And I know for me, I mean, I loved evangelism. I did evangelism. I carry tracks in my car and with me on my person. All right? I'm always looking for opportunities. But understanding this truth has emboldened me to do evangelism and to share Jesus Christ more with people. That's what it has done. And that's what it will do when you begin to believe this. Well, how? Well, I just want to share. For the past two weeks... It has been so encouraging to have church member after church member come up and share with us. And I can see it even before they begin to say things. Their face is beaming and they're excited because they are sharing and doing evangelism and sharing Jesus Christ with their family, their friends, and their neighbors. That is so exciting. And people come and they're excited. I encourage you, continue to do that. But I want to talk about the implications of what it means to believe this truth versus what it means to doesn't. To not believe it. Number one, if you have ever, or you are right now, praying for someone's salvation, and we're struggling a little bit with this, I just want to encourage you, if you're praying for someone's salvation, or have ever prayed for the salvation of someone else, I just want to show you, you already believe in what Jesus is teaching us here. You already believe it. Because we wouldn't pray for someone's salvation unless we knew it was up to who to do it. God. We wouldn't pray because if if we don't think he can do that or he does that, he leaves it up to their free will, we wouldn't pray for God to do something, right? We would pray, 
God, help me to become a better evangelist. And I know I've felt that pressure. Because when you don't believe this, the only hope people have. I mean, when you come across someone who is dead set against God, they hate God, they hate the word of God, they hate Christians. When you come across someone like that, and you know them, maybe you used to be one of them, right? Or they're in your family or your workplace. When you come across someone like that, if you don't believe God sovereignly works in salvation, what hope do they have of ever coming to Christ? The only hope they have is you and your techniques of how you're going to share the gospel. And I felt that pressure because then all of a sudden I have to know everything. I have to look at all the verses. I have to be ready to answer them. And it's like a battle. And it's a battle that you can't win. Flesh only produces flesh. But I want to encourage you. Because if you believe this truth, then that means no heart is too hard for the Lord to break. The unbelieving spouse that you have, or the unbelieving family member, or the child that you have, listen, there is no debate with the Lord if He chooses to save them. There is no conversation. There's no debate. It is an instantaneous thing if He shows up in their life. Nowhere in Scripture do we see God revealing Himself to somebody and them saying, I don't want any of that. We don't see that anywhere. In fact, we see the opposite. God reveals himself to somebody, and what happens? They crumble immediately, and they call him Lord. They submit the knee, and they say, my Lord and my God. And we have a picture of this in Scripture. If you look at Acts chapter 9, we see a man who hated Christians. He hated God. He thought it was blasphemy to speak of Jesus Christ as God. And so he went around killing Christians, murdering Christians. And in verse 1, Saul, listen, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue. He basically wanted permission to go and persecute Christians. He had already been executing Christians. This is the type of person we're dealing with. And if you don't believe the truth of the sovereignty of God and salvation, how are you going to reach someone who's doing this? How is ISIS going to be reached with the gospel? This is the type of people that Saul was persecuting Christians. We read in verse 3. Now he went on his way. He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, whom are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus just tells him what to do. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. There was no debate. There was no, well, I'm going to think about this and get back with you. Verse 10, skipping down, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, what? He is praying. He's praying now. He didn't have his vision, right? He had seen a vision. 
that you would come lay hands on him. And I had answered, Lord, I have heard about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, listen, listen to this, go for he is a chosen instrument, chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he has to suffer for the sake of my name. Verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. The family member or the spouse in your life or the co-worker or the person on your heart you're trying to reach for the gospel. It could be tomorrow the Lord gets a hold of their heart and the next day they're proclaiming Jesus Christ and leading others to him. That is not an impossibility. That is a fact that can happen. And so trust in the Lord. Have hope in the Lord. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Just as Jesus was teaching in John chapter 2 and John chapter 3 and John chapter 6, Saul, we see, had nothing to do with his spiritual birth. What did he have to do? He was going to kill Christians and the Lord showed up. We read in Acts 9, the Lord would do incredible things through Saul. He would be his chosen instrument. We see all throughout the Old Testament, there was entire nations chosen for certain purposes. Israel was chosen, a small group of people. That wasn't fair. Nations were chosen. Moses was chosen for certain things. Pharaoh was chosen. All these people were used by God for certain things. It wasn't coincidental. Jesus knows who is, what is in all people. And he knows all people. And I know, I mean, if you think about this, was it fair that God decided to, to just grab Saul and make him his chosen instrument? And then we read that he would carry his name before the Gentiles, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Is that fair that God did that? And now Saul in his ministry would suffer for the name of Jesus. I want to tell you, church, it was fair. It was more than fair. How do we know that? Well, because Saul himself says it in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul was saying, listen, I know I have to go and I'm going to die and I'm going to be martyred for the faith, and I'm going through all these things. But listen, this is nothing compared to what God has given me. As believers in Jesus Christ, maybe this is confronting truths that, that you've held on for a long time. And I'm not saying, listen, just take my word for it. That would be a bad idea. Look, go to the Scriptures and study these things. Because when you begin to grasp some of these truths, God will show up in your life and do things and show you things and you trust on him more because of what he's done. You understand it's the spirit that has done these things, not the flesh. And the same is true for us this morning. I want to encourage you. 
no heart is too hard for the Lord to break when you believe this truth. If you decide not to believe this truth, that every man can resist the will of God, that Paul could have said, no, I'm going to keep going and killing Christians. That's a question you have to ask yourself. Could Paul have said that? I'm going to keep going and I'm going to keep killing Christians and I'm going to go do what I want to do. Because if you said, yeah, Paul could do that, well, now you've just imposed a view of man that we don't see in the Scripture and a view of God we don't see in the Scripture. And if you say, well, God only does that sometimes, you need to ask yourself, why does God do it sometimes and not all the time? How come some people are chosen and pursued that way that we see in the Bible and some people aren't? And these are questions you will just have to struggle with. And so if you have questions, we'd love to to chat with you, to talk with you. But I just want to encourage you, the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is powerful. The Lord is strong. And just as Jesus is teaching, only the flesh can produce flesh. Only the spirit produces spirit. So pray for those in your life. I want to end by reading Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. That needs to be our prayer this morning. May we look to Jesus this morning, for he is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I encourage you, call out, on the name of the Lord if you have never done so. Confess him as Lord and Savior in your life. Pursue him. May we look to Jesus Christ, our Lord, this morning. Would you pray with me? God, it is a miracle that I can speak your name with love because my flesh wants nothing to do with you. God, our flesh, if we see ourselves clearly, our flesh, what we were born into, Ephesians says, only desires the works that produce death, sin against you. So we need to have a right perspective of who we are and who you are, that you are a sovereign God. You do as you please. God, we submit to you. God, we come and we give you praise because you knew who we were. Yet you still loved us and pursued us in spite of those shameful secrets and sins in our past that we try to forget. You knew all of those things. God, that should break our heart this morning. That should be what fuels our worship, what fuels our passion, what fuels our evangelism. God, I pray for those who are praying for a spouse or praying for for a family member to come to you. May you encourage them. May you encourage them that there is hope. God, we thank you for your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.